0: The scripture this morning is from Matthew 26, verses 17 to 35. Hear the word of the Lord. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks... He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. This is God's word.
1: Thanks be to God. Uh, John Newhouse wrote this. He said, Do not hurry by the cross on your way to Easter joy, for we know the risen Lord only through Christ and him crucified. And yet, if you're honest, um, if you're like me, we do rush right past Christ and him crucified to Easter Sunday and he is risen and uh, it becomes uh, real easy for us to turn Easter into something thats that we're unprepared for, uh, that, that we haven't really uh, given uh, heart patterns to, and so we end up kind of coming. And we know it's a Sunday, we dress up a little bit more, or maybe it becomes that nice little event at the end of your spring break. But we want to give you some tools this week that would help you to long for Easter, because we don't long for it enough. And if, if you, like like many, I think... Uh, Christians in America today would think of Easter as a, a definite second place to to Christmas. Then you of all people need these tools this week because this is the center of our hope, um, and we need to we need to long for it. This is what um, it means. This is what our faith is is all about. And so here's a few things that we're I uh, we just wanna. Little public service announcement to, to uh, prepare you for the week. One of the things that we have are some holy readings, and you'll see those in the in the bulletin. Uh, they have been carefully chosen this week to help you as you're reflecting through. Uh, the Passion Narrative, and also some Psalms, and some of the prophets, and uh, letters of Paul, and things like that. Um, we uh, will be putting this out. It's also on the website. You'll be seeing a daily blast on social media, on Facebook, and Twitter. When you get that, just know we're not just talking to other people. We're talking to you. We really want everybody to read this together. We think that this will help prepare our hearts. Um, the next thing is Maundy Thursday, and that happens at seven o'clock on Thursday. It's funny how that works. Um, and, uh, and what that is, uh, how many of you have been to one of our Maundy Thursday services before? Okay. I think uh, it's probably the most unique service we do, and some people actually say it's their favorite service of the year. It's very different. It, it makes much of the darkness before the dawn, and uh, it, it kind of it, it heightens the, um, all the things that, that Peggy just just, uh, just read about and reminds us of the... Uh, that the great treasures shine great against a a dark background and so we we kind of focus on that dark background for a bit we'll we'll have communion there but then we'll we'll walk through the moments of Jesus's betrayal and arrest and denial and crucifixion and all the rest we encourage you to do that Uh, and then on Friday we have something really unique here Um, how many of you guys the last couple years have gone to our journey to the cross and just see those hands okay awesome Um, that is an opportunity for you to drop into the church we will have, it will be unrecognizable to you. The entire first floor is turned into a, a series of stations that, uh, that you can drop into the church sometime between 11 a.m. and 6 p.m., just come on your lunch break or in the afternoon, just whenever fits. And it'll take you about 45 minutes to walk through the whole thing, give or take. And uh, the goal is for you to have kind of a, a personal experience that involves all the senses as you think through the seven last sayings of Christ on the cross. And so we encourage you to do that. Now, I know that this is spring break and some of you will, will be out of town and miss out on Thursday and Friday, but I'm sure that wherever you're going, there's a Monday Thursday service out there somewhere or a Good Friday service. And so having this as the cadence of our lives so that we don't just spring into Sunday. Um, is is really good. And so I'm going to encourage you wherever you are to to build that cadence in, whether it's the the readings or or service or whatever that may be. And then we'll all gather up here on Sunday, and we will raise the roof on this place and and saying He is risen, right? But we'll long for it more, and we'll be prepared for it more when it comes. So I'm going to encourage you to be a part of that. By the way, these cards right here about Journey to the Cross, we have a bunch of them in the foyer, um, loads of them. Grab as many as you need, just to invite people to come and, and, uh, and stop by the church at some point on Friday and be a part of it. It also lists a little bit Information about our other services, but but grab that and use it as an invitation this week. Let's pray together. Father, we don't long enough for your return, we don't hope enough in your resurrection, we're not faithful enough uh, to follow you the way you hold on to us that we just sang. But, Lord, we're here this morning because you're enough, and we're hanging on to you. We pray that you would even in this sermon uh, use uh, these words to encourage and to bring uh, hope and to strengthen faith and to make us long for something beyond us, something beyond the day. And we pray, Lord, as you do that, that these would not be my words, but your words, and not my thoughts, but your thoughts. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, to start with this passage this morning, I want to share with you, I just was, in, I was encouraging you to prepare for Easter, and I want to tell you how I've been preparing the last couple of weeks. Um, uh, as I've been reading through the, the, the stories here in the gospel accounts of Jesus' uh, uh, passion narrative and all that, the last days, the trial, the crucifixion, what I've, I've been trying to take seriously this idea that Jesus is standing in my place in those moments, uh, to the point of reflecting on putting myself in those scenes. In place of where Jesus is and imagining that instead of the Savior who doesn't deserve this the one standing in all of those scenes is the me that does Um, what if the one that that took my place didn't take my place and it was me in those moments and if you if you step into that what I've realized is that you get your head and your heart into that and there's a lot of mess there that you have to work through. You, have, you imagine yourself, and there are plenty to lay your heart low as you think about the beatings and the pain and the thirst and the mockings and the injustice of the whole thing and the, the exposure and all of that. Um, but for me, I, the reason I share this is because, uh, for me, the the place where my heart has been in my throat the most, as I think through all of these things, has been imagining the loneliness uh, that's set up in this moment that we just heard read to imagine everyone that I've ever known deserting me. To imagine my, my closest friends denying me, one of them even betraying me, and then at the end to imagine even my heavenly father turning his face away. And so I picture that with everyone, from old childhood friends to all the members of this church to my own wife and kids just averting their eyes and walking away. And imagining that, I realize that among the penalties that's due to me, apart from God's grace, is the penalty of being alone, the, the penalty of isolation. That is what Jesus is stepping into in this passage. And if you're in a season of loneliness and many of us find ourselves in those places, then you have this encouragement of seeing that you have a Savior who is able to sympathize with that. Um, there were some Duke University sociologists who did a study back in 2009. They interviewed 1,500 people. And in the process, they discovered that a quarter of them said, That they had no one in their lives, no one, that they could share their personal joys and, and struggles with. And if you took out family members, the number jumped to one half. Jesus can resonate with that because he would willingly step into that place of isolation and aloneness for us. And in this passage, he's predicting one, two, three. He's predicting Judas' betrayal. He's predicting all of the disciples bailing and deserting him. And then he's specifically honing in on Peter and his denial. And then, if you watch the verses that play out, which we'll look at on Monday, Thursday, you see that they play out in exactly that order through a kiss and a garden and a rooster. Here's the verses. There um, we go. Sorry. Here they are right here. And you'll notice that uh, two out of three of them take this construction that we've been looking at in this series called When Jesus Says Amen. It's translated sometimes as verily or truly or pay attention, but, but uh, right here, it's amen, I tell you. One of you will betray me. And in verse 31, he says, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, and, and that triggers Peter's comments, which then leads to verse 34 and another amen, verily, truly, pay attention, amen, I tell you. This very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So what we want to look at, if we were doing this passage in a different series, the center of this whole thing would be communion, the Lord's Supper. I mean, that's, that's definitely the, the hinge of this whole passage. But, but because we're doing this series when Jesus says amen, what we really want to highlight this morning is those two statements specifically, the statement to Judas and the statement to, to Peter, both amen I tell you. And so the first one is to Judas, we know it's Judas, but it appears that nobody else in the room besides Jesus and Judas knows that it's Judas. So it says here, when, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, amen, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad. Some of the translations, and I think it's okay to call it, they were horrified. And they began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And Jesus answers by saying, in essence, yes, it's one of you that's eating with me right now, um, that's dipping your, uh, uh, that dip, using the same bowl that I am. They all would have been doing that. Uh, and so he's saying, it's one of you here right at this moment. Up to this point, Jesus has said that at some point he's going to be handed over, but he hasn't given any of the details. And here's where he's giving more detail now. And it's stunning that when he says this, none of the guys think, oh, yeah, it's probably that guy over there, Judas. Right? Like, wouldn't you think? We all know it's Judas, right? We all go, wait, no, it's him. It's like you're watching TV and you, it's that scary movie and you're saying, no, don't go into the ominous forest in the creepy-looking shed with the scary-looking door where you heard the chainsaw, right? Don't go in there, right? Because we know how this thing's going to play out. We know it's Judas. But they didn't know that it was Judas. And Judas has apparently covered his tracks so well that, get this, the other guys are more likely to believe that it's them than that it's Judas. They all say, surely not I, right? They don't all say, oh yeah, the betrayer, it's probably that guy, and all 11 other fingers point at at Judas. Look at your bulletin cover just for a moment, so I'll put it up here on the the screen. This is a 19th century painter named Carl Block. Uh, Which one of those is Judas? It's that guy, right? So it's so obvious it's the shifty-looking redhead in the corner, right? But in real life, Judas wasn't the sneaky guy in the corner with the sinister mood lighting and the ominous music, right? He was one of the 12. He was respected. he has been a part of this company for for three years he's the one that's been entrusted with the money turns out they shouldn't have done that but he was they trusted him enough to do that there was nothing obvious on the surface and in fact if you look at this parallel account in john 12 when jesus actually hands a piece of bread to him and says what you have come to do go do quickly the guys all think he goes grocery shopping i'm not kidding look it up jesus was the only one who saw the darkness in Judas's heart. He was the only one who saw that, that Judas used to help himself to the money in the bag. He was the only one who saw Judas's heart and Judas's treachery as he watches this woman pouring perfume at Jesus' feet. He's the only one who knows in this moment what Judas is up to. With the exception of the omniscient Son of God, nobody knows what's going on. He has apparently carried out this double agent role to a T, Perfectly. A few years ago, some of you may have been here, we had the honor of hosting an event where this man, Don Richardson, spoke, not that man, but the man who wrote the book about that man. So um, Don is a missionary from Papua New Guinea, and uh, he wrote this book, Peace Child, about his work with uh, the Sawi Indians. In the Sawi culture, they have this fun tradition. A warrior will persuade another warrior to become his friend with the intention of killing and eating him later. Wonderful, right? The goal is to be absolutely unsuspected until you spring the trap at the end, that they would not see it coming. And the more complicated the plan, the more honored the warrior will be for having carried it out. No lie. You carry out a good plan, they will honor you. That's the story they will tell at the campfire. Men will pledge their daughters to the men who have the best stories of deception and traitoring. So you want to concoct, if you want to be a hero, you want to concoct a, a great story of deception and betrayal. And then, by the way, the friends of the family that you've just killed and eaten, um, they get to plot their revenge, and so it goes on for generations, and it's loads of fun, right? Just what, a, what a fun family game, right? So when Don started sharing the gospel with the sawi, he was shocked to discover that they legitimately thought that Judas was the hero of the story. No kidding. He writes, at the climax of the story, as he's reading about Judas's kiss, the chief whistled a bird call of admiration. Connie and several others touched their fingertips to their chest in awe. Still others chuckled. I tried to protest. Jesus was good. But nothing I said would erase that gleam of savage enjoyment in their eyes. One of the men afterwards says with admiration, that was real tui asonaiman," which Richardson finds out later is a phrase that they use to describe fattening up an unsuspecting pig right before you slaughter it. Men do this to their friends as heroes of their culture in the sawi He says here, the sawi had long ago, oops sorry. There it is. The sawi had long ago passed beyond what they would consider a layman's concept of murder into a far out lifestyle where treachery was idealized as a virtue, a goal of life. Overt killing no longer held real pleasure for them. They would even risk letting an intended victim escape in order to pursue the more sophisticated ideal expressed in Tui Asanaiman. That was why the story of Judas Iscariot had aroused them. Judas was a super Sa'wi you need to read peace child the rest of it to find out what happens i don't have time to go there now but uh bottom line is i read recently that they uh they're celebrating like the 50 year anniversary of this tribe all following christ now so obviously something happens and you need to read the story but my point is this a culture that is built on betrayal would look at judas and say wow this guy did it perfectly Even in this moment, Judas is playing along. They all say, surely not I, Lord. And Judas can either be silent or he can play along. So he's the last one to speak. And he says, surely not I, teacher. And some people try and make a lot of, well, he didn't call him Lord, so he didn't believe that he was God. That's, it's more, um, Lord was a, a, a versatile term that they used then, and, and uh, teacher was more formal. So he's just being a little bit more formal about it. But Jesus' response, he says, you have said so. It's that knowing look across the room that everybody else misses, but Judas knows that Jesus knows. I talk about us stepping into this story, these stories. For some of you, this one's far too easy to step into, unfortunately. Because you can imagine what treachery and betrayal look like. You felt it. Uh, Maybe you're living in a broken home that is the result of a betrayal. Uh, Maybe you've had a, a trusted religious leader who has betrayed your trust and you, you, you experience something that you never thought would happen. Maybe a close friend has stolen from you or, or rejected you or has broken a, a strict confidence. Some relational American equivalent of tui asonaiman, And you felt it. Calvin says that this moment in Jesus' life should keep us from surprise. He says it should keep us from, quote, being knocked lifeless at the appearance of traitors in the household. For what he who experienced who is the common head of the church experienced, must happen to us who are his members. I know that that doesn't necessarily provide all the answers that you want when you're going through something like that, but it says that Jesus understands how you feel in that. He's been betrayed unto death by a three-year disciple, fellow sojourner, a dinner companion, and a friend. He knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by an intimate kiss of a friend. So that's Judas, Judas's worst day ever, right? It's also Peter's worst day ever. After dinner, it says this Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That's a verse from Zechariah 13. And on this one, there's not just one where they all have to go, Surely not I, Lord. Is it I, Lord? Because he's saying, No, you don't have to sniff out the traitor here. All of you are going to do this one. And Peter swings from that reasonable self-doubt of just a few moments ago where he said, surely not I, Lord, introspectively. Could it be me? He swings from that to this unreasonably reckless confidence where he says, even if all fall away from you, I never will. And then we get Jesus' second truly, verily, amen, I say to you statement. Amen, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So there's Peter's answer, verse 33. You see it there. there. Though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. What did Peter do wrong there? Actually, in one short sentence, Peter covered an awful lot of ground. I'm going to mention four things that I think that Peter failed in there. The first one is this. It's a, it's a condescension towards the other disciples. Even if all fall away, his way of saying, okay, fine, Lord, let's, let's be honest. We, we can believe that these other guys would fall away, right? I mean, I'll give you that. He assumes that the Lord's warnings are about other people. He says, I can believe that they would fail. Sure, I just can't believe that I would fail. I'm a different class, right? I'm Peter. I'm the rock. I'm, I'm your star student. I walked on water for a couple seconds. Remember that? Folks, we can never believe that we are incapable of doing something that we see other people doing. We can never believe that we're incapable of doing the things that others seem to be capable of. And if we're honest with our own hearts, we struggle with the same things that pretty much everybody struggles with and we're capable of doing so much more than we actually do. We're not as bad as we could be. We could all think of ways to be worse. We're all as bad off as we could be, but we're not all as bad as we could be. And that should give us a sober-mindedness in admitting our need for him and a humility in approaching the sin of others because we recognize, we often say it here, there but for the grace of God go I. I got a birthday card last week from my, my former college roommate who is serving a life sentence, no parole, in a penitentiary in Florida. And I look at that and I think if just a few scenarios in our pasts, in our upbringings, had been different, could be me sending him the card. The second thing is this a confidence in his own capacity. Um, Calvin calls this the intoxication of human self-confidence. He goes from, surely not I, Lord, to, you better believe it's not I, Lord. I could take a bullet for you. I've got this. And so his, I will never, is actually so left field that Jesus says, immediately says, actually, Peter, you're, you're not going to make it through the night without doing this. You will sin against me tonight. You will sin against me three times you will sin against me by denying that you even know me. In other words, Peter, you will deny me swiftly, unequivocally, and repeatedly. Peter's bold enough, if you notice, he lasts a little bit longer than the other disciples because they all kind of flee in the garden. Peter makes it to the, to the courtyard. He gets to sit by a fire and see Jesus firsthand, but that just makes his fall all the more spectacular when he gets there. He falls just as hard. So we have to be honest about our own weakness in this. We, uh, Augustine said it this way: He said, "Why should a person presume so much on the capacity of his nature? It is wounded, hurt, damaged. It needs a true confession, not a false defense." I heard one of the commentaries I read said this. I really like this. I think this is the lesson for us. It says, "Don't." He said, "Don't put your faith in your faith. This isn't about your confidence." the amount of your faith. Luther, we sang that song at the beginning of worship, The uh, Mighty Fortress, and he said, if we, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. You can't confide in your own strength. Your own faith and your own effort and your own conviction and your own well-meaning strength of resolve are not enough to shot block temptation, to stiff arm sin. It's not enough to do that. Instead, you are putting all of who you are, about that much, into all of who he is and that he is your strength to live out your faith. You're not relying on yourself. Don't put your faith in your faith. The third thing he does, and this is a bold one, contradiction of his Lord's word. Jesus has said all this will happen the Son of God, the Messiah, has said that. In fulfillment of Zechariah, the sheep will scatter. He didn't list any exceptions, and, Paul, and Peter has the nerve to say, oh, yeah, except for me, Lord, because you got me wrong there. You're wrong about me. It is a bold thing to say to the Messiah, you're wrong about anything, right? And Peter's in the habit of doing this. You remember, that Jesus says the Son of Man must be betrayed, and, you know, and he goes, oh, no, Lord, that doesn't have to happen, right? Right? Peter's in the habit of contradicting his Savior. And we think that is really weird, right? That is gutsy and bold and stupid. And then we have to ask, where do we do that? Where do we absolutely, flatly contradict Jesus' words? And uh, with our own opinions, with our own actions, with our own wisdom. And so he says, and I'm quoting Jesus here, he says, love your neighbor, and you say, okay, I will accept that guy. Or he says, take up your cross and follow me. And you say, okay, I will do that in A, B, and C, but Jesus, keep your nose out of X, Y, and Z. Or here's one, he says this. This is Jesus talking to you. He says, "Um, uh, if someone sins against you, go to them personally and show them the fault. And you say, yes, Jesus, but I have a better plan that involves gossip and Facebook posts and public shunning, and I'm gonna call the pastor, right? Not that that's ever happened before, right? Um, As hard as this is for Peter... This is the Lord talking. He's going to be right here. Peter's not going to be right here. And so instead of mounting a defense, it would be better to say, if that's really what's going to happen, then Lord, help me. Lord, hold on to me. Please guide me. Please help me through this. And lastly... Not just a condescension, a confidence, a contradiction, but you know when everything begins with C, sometimes it just doesn't work out quite so well. Carelessness in his listening skills. What I'm trying to say there is selective obedience. That's the best I could come up with that began with C. Is that okay? Just hang with it. I want you to remember this, you know, over lunch or whatever. So, um, Carelessness in his... What I mean by that is he doesn't hear the whole thing. He only hears the bad part. He doesn't hear the rest. He only hears the first part of the sentence. Yes, Jesus talked about failure and desertion, but he also said in verse 32, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And I think Peter hears fail, 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 blah, 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 something about Galilee. Fail, fail, fail. There's grace and there's hints of resurrection there and restoration and it's all in one final comment and yet Peter, just like us, is going to focus on that allusion to failure. If, if you leave here today and you've heard 10 good things about you that, and, and one person said something negative, when your head hits the pillow tonight, what are you going to remember? Peter hears failure, 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 blah, 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 something good, failure, failure. So there are two amen uh, sentences there, one for Peter, one for Judas. I think it's helpful for us to ask this question. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? And there's a lot that we can be said here. But it's fair to ask, you know, why is Peter still a popular baby name today and Judas not so much? (laughs) I checked. We have four Pete's or Peters in this membership here and we have no Judases. I don't know why. There are lots of differences that we could talk about. We could talk about the difference between betrayal and denial. We could talk about the difference between repentance and remorse. We could talk about the difference between being around Jesus and actually being in Jesus. But there's one that I want us to focus on It's not the only one, but I think one of the most telling differences about these two guys is where they went when they failed. When Judas feels the shock of what he's done, he feels remorse. He goes back to the high priest and the Pharisees. He tries to give the money back. He says, I've betrayed innocent blood. And what is the great shepherding wisdom of his spiritual leaders? They say this What is that to us? That's your responsibility. That's not our problem, that's your problem. We can't help you. This one's on you. You go figure it out. That's the message of the world. Work it out. That's the message of every religion outside the gospel. It's your responsibility. Go work it out. Live better, try harder, show yourself approved. It's your responsibility. Work it out. But it doesn't work. And when Judas went looking for absolution, the answer that he got was, that's your responsibility. Figure it out. A dead end, literally a dead end answer for Judas. Peter, he fails miserably as well, right? But he didn't get the message of the world. He gets the message of the cross instead. And there's little hints of it all throughout here, although the resurrection hasn't happened yet. We see it, it's peppered throughout all of this dialogue Even in Jesus' final moments, he's taking into account not just Peter's failure, but all the disciples. He's the only unfailing one at the table. Peter's failure is an ingredient in the meal. It's why the meal exists. So look at verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What sins? The sins that they are about to commit, among others. In other words, the very purpose of laying out the table is to provide forgiveness for the very things that they are about to do. For I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The table is a picture of the love of God, the love of Jesus for failures like Peter and you and me. He says his blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Get this, it is, it is the failure of the men, it is the weakness of the men at the meal that shows the need for the meal. The host of the meal is going to have to become the Passover lamb. He's going to have to shed his blood for the failure of his guests. For the forgiveness of sins. That's the point. This has never been, this story has never been about the disciples' perseverance with Jesus. It's always been about his perseverance. We don't sing things like, um, "their." Love never failed, it never gave up, it never ran out on Jesus. We don't sing that. 2,000 years later, and we're going to sing this one in just a minute, we sing, your love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me. And he hints at something astounding. When all that they can hear is death and betrayal and predictions of failure, he says this little thing. He says, we're going to continue this meal later. I will drink this new with you in my Father's kingdom. And more than that, if you take a look at some of the other places where these hints come in, I love this one, right? In the Luke account, when he's talking to Peter about Peter's soon-to-be-denying action, he says, I prayed for you, Simon, that's Peter, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. I love that. The assumption is failure. To turn back, first he has to turn from and saying, I, I know you're going to turn away, but when you turn back, there's still a role for you to play here. The assumption is failure. And best of all, it's not. To, this isn't just a long-term thing. One day you will experience my forgiveness, Peter. But he says, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Remember, Galilee is where they're all from. That's, th- that's their home region. And based on all these predictions of their failure, the disciples would have every reason, their best case scenario would be to picture themselves heading miserably back to their homes in Galilee, leaving Jesus' body behind in a Jerusalem tomb, and that's it. But Jesus has something amazing tagged onto the end of this. He says, "I will, after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. I will race you home. I will get there before you. I'll meet you there. He'll be there to bring to reality all of these little hints of joy and acceptance and forgiveness. I want you to, if you would just for a moment, just go with me to this. This is a dark place to go, but I want you to imagine that you have just been told with great specificity that you are about to make a horrific blunder a horrific sin. You are about to swan dive into it. You are about to make a shipwreck of your life. You're going to commit the sin that you never even imagined you could commit or you're going to commit the sin that you know you're absolutely capable of and it keeps you up at night. That's where these guys are, right? Now, I want you to imagine Jesus saying this. When you fail, I'll meet you back at home. I'll race you home. And we'll work through this. I will go ahead of you to the morning after. I will go ahead of you to meet you in the rubble that has just been created by what you've done. I'll meet you there in that sin and we will go from there. That's what he's saying to Peter here, to to you and to me. I love this quote from, uh, from Russell Moore in his book Onward. He says, the devil wishes to assure some people that there's no need for repentance and others that there's no hope for mercy. Some people are deceived into thinking they are too good for the gospel, while others are accused into thinking that they are too bad for the gospel. That is Satan's strategy, deception and accusation, whichever one works. Both of those, both of those, to believe that you're too good for it or too bad for it, are the height of arrogance. To believe either that you can't fail that big, or to believe that Jesus can fail to meet you in it, to rescue you from it. Now, normally, it would be awesome from this moment to kind of head to the table, because that's what this passage is about. You'll notice there's no table there this morning. It's because we're in Holy Week, and we're in the cadence of Holy Week. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper on Thursday as a reminder of when, when Jesus gave this new command and when he instituted this new covenant. So we'll do it then. But how cool that we actually now have a few extra days. We're always supposed to come and prepare ourselves for coming to the Lord's table. And you have a a couple of extra days to reflect on what I'm about to share with you, to actually prepare your hearts for coming to the table on Thursday. So ask yourself this. First of all, ask yourself, where do I believe I'm too good for the gospel? The places where I feel like I've got this figured out, I'm a reasonably good person. I don't really see that I need to change. Then ask yourself, where where are the places where I believe that I'm too bad for the gospel? The places where my sin has become such a flagrant foul that I I just assume that I've been ejected from the game. The places where you're stuck because you can't see a way out, because you can't imagine that Jesus would race you home to meet you on the other side of that sin. It's freeing to let go. I know at work or maybe on a team or something, you've heard this statement, failure is not an option. What a freeing thing for a Christian to recognize that failure is actually the price of admission, right? All of Christ's followers enter the kingdom through the front door of failure. That's what it's about. An admission of both our sin and our capacity to sin. It's an admission of, I can't, you can, meet me here, race me home. Allow that reality of you as a great sinner and of Jesus as a great Savior to to encourage you and to free you and then we'll come together on Thursday and we'll put that into action as we come around the table together. His love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out. Let's pray. Father, uh, we're not good enough. We're not capable enough. We're not religious enough. We're not righteous enough. Clever enough, wise enough, you're enough. Father, we, uh, we commit all that we are, which isn't much, to all that you are, which is vast, and ask that you would hold us up. And Lord, not just that we would feel then a wonderful free pass that would enable us to swan dive into our sin, but that it would, it would change us to know what you went through so that you could meet us on the other side of our mess. That that would change us, it would make us more generous, it would make us more bold. It would affect everything from the way we give our tithes and offerings to the way that we invite people to Easter Sunday to the way that we love our neighbors and forgive one another. Lord, we, um, we don't need more of us. The advice that the, the Pharisees gave Judas was just more Judas. We don't need more of us. We need more of you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would come and meet with us as we close our worship, Lord, and in the week ahead, in Jesus' name. Amen.